Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. We are hunters, anglers, riders, and sometimes chefs. Our passion for the outdoor lifestyle motivated the foundation of Harvesting Nature, which serves as a media outlet built to inspire and educate the outdoor expert and novice alike. Our podcast focuses on the technical side of cooking wild fish and game, while also incorporating adventures and lessons learned from our pursuit of wild meat. Join us on our journey of harvesting nature. Hey everyone, welcome back to Harvesting Nature Wild Fishing Game Podcast. Uh, today's going to be a good episode with the the full crew here. So we got everybody sitting around. Naturally, got myself, Justin Townsend, uh, editor in chief over at Harvesting Nature, and to my right, I have. Hey, this is Dustin. Welcome back. And up in the Great White Northeast. Hey, this is Corey. Ready to talk. <laughs> and the, the great rainy Northwest. And hey, this is Colin. How's it going? So uh, we've got some good representation. We just need somebody from the Southwest now, and uh, and we'll have like a full, a full entourage four. of the four corners. Cover yeah. all four corners, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so today I think what we want to spend some time talking about, it's been a while since we've all four been on the same episode because we've been running a lot of guests. Uh, and then we've either been running threes or twos, depending on the number of guests run, which, uh, definitely getting a lot of encouragement from the guest interactions and the cool conversations that have come from that. So that's definitely not going to stop, but we are going to try to reserve one episode a month just for the crew and for travel and just to kind of get some, uh, some of our stories and what we're up to just in case you're wondering um not that it's anything out of the ordinary but it's still fun to to hear and talk about and provide some good learning opportunities for everyone just to sort of catch up on on what i've been doing down here in the florida keys so once covid hit it kind of changed the dynamic and a lot of you know we spent a lot of time talking about sort of things canceling out the spring hunting season so uh that's swamp turkey but it did open up some other avenues that Early in the spring, uh, Dustin was like, hey, let's go spear fishing." And I was like, that's cool. I just sold my spear gun. But um, <laughs> Good timing. Yeah, great timing. But I am willing to try hunting with a spear pole. So we did do that for a little while and then eventually upgraded to a gun. And now we have a group of uh, probably about four or five of us, I would say probably six now, get out to go hunting uh, in the water, not on land. And then 
so we've been really enjoying once hogfish season opened up here in the Florida Keys. Uh, that's been one of the primary targets, but also starting to learn a lot more about the other fish species, uh, you know, grouper, the various types of grouper, which ones are good to shoot, which ones are illegal to shoot. And then uh, some other fish, so getting into amberjack, uh, the yellow jacks, snapper, of course, all varieties. The bad thing now, the, some of the snapper are spawning, so they're off the reefs in, the, in a little bit deeper water. And then just uh, generally trying to get better accustomed to the sort of style of, of quote-unquote hunting here in Key West. I think for me, one of the coolest things is is you have noticed some of our guests have popped up and are from the spearfishing side of the world. So it's good, I think, to see and talk to those individuals because, you know, hunting, hunting is uh, hunting's pretty much non-existent here in the Florida Keys. So our biggest go-to to replace that would be spearfishing. So I think it's an important demographic within both the hunting and fishing communities and it's uh i've had fun slowly becoming a part of that and i won't say that i'm fully incorporated into it by no means or an expert at all but uh, i do enjoy it and it's been a fun thing to learn and dustin's kind of been there off and on too he's he's now the proud owner of like six spearfishing guns <laughs> uh, i think it's i think spearfishing is the good it bridges the gap for hunters, right? Like, like fishing is just, you're catching fish when you can. And spearfishing is almost like that, that hunter's choice. You get to see what you're shooting at. You get to look and say, all right, that one's of size. I want to shoot that one. I want to eat that one. So it definitely does bridge the gap, but keep in mind where, wherever you are, and you know, even the Bible says right there for everything has a season. So a lot of times you want big game, there's certain seasons for it, but when it comes to fish, you might not be able to shoot, every fish or catch every fish at any time of the year, but there's always some sort of fish to catch. And that's what I love about down here is that there's always someone pulling something out, you know, when hogfish is in season, pulling it out, cooking it up. Okay. Hogfish is no longer in season. There's still snapper, you know, you got, you got amberjack and, and all that, like you mentioned. So it's, it's pretty enjoyable to see everyone pulling out wild game, even though it's not large game, pulling out some sort of fish, something that they, they harvested and cooking nice, clean, natural meat. I will say too, um, I've been introduced into sort of the wild pig hunting crowd of, of central Florida. Uh, so I made some connections on social media to some guys that lease some land up in central Florida and have, they go up there at least like once a month or so and hunt wild hogs. And as they brought their hogs back down, I've been helping them processing them and, uh, you know, storing them, freezing, vacuum sealing, all that stuff. So, uh, in trade, I've been getting access to some delicious wild pork meat. And uh, once our travel restrictions end, I'm probably going to head up there to to hunt with those guys on their lease to help alleviate the state of Florida of some of their wild pig population. Um, but it's definitely cool to learn more about that whole aspect of hunting down here. It's definitely a subculture amongst hunting and even a subculture within, the, the I think, the Florida hunting community. So... It's uh, some neat stuff to it. Well, also proud to announce, so uh, recently just started uh, 
as a food contributor for Spearing Magazine. So if you guys go, uh, that's still a print publication. So if you go subscribe to that publication, you'll get to read some of my sweet fish recipes. Uh, we got the most recent one will be coming up in the next issue. So you still got some time to subscribe to make sure that makes it to your door. Yeah, I love it. I can't wait until we get to leave Monroe County and go out hog hunting again. Yeah, I wish we had some more opportunities towards the end there to go up. Um, we've touched on it a bunch of times with my canceled turkey hunt. Um, the highly covered turkey tag I had for Dinner Island Ranch. But uh, yeah, it was a real bummer. But I think people are feeling that every way, everywhere so that uh, they can't go get some of the hunts in that they want. It goes to show because like, we started really getting into this months before you got orders yeah. and had to leave here. But once we, we connected on that, it was like, right, hey, let's go hunt this. Let's go hunt that. Let's see what we yeah. can do. So we, we traveled quite a bit. We looked around. There was multiple different species that we were able to try to harvest. Yeah. We went up there, what, and, three times? Two or three yeah. times? Yeah. And, and I'm thinking, for anyone listening, get out there. Talk talk to other people who go hunting, whether they're they're hunting you know, waterfowl, large game, small game. Go out, hunt with your buddies from work. Hunt with hunt with random people. Try a club. Get out there, and, and the people you meet, the the bonds are amazing. Yeah, and, and if nothing feels better than bringing home clean meat to your family, I would say one thing. Um, I do want to say I, I was pretty successful in my fall hunting drawing, so I'm pretty excited about that, and it's gonna lead way to some cool adventures and articles and photos and and we're we're going to do some film projects this year with uh with tags, right? i drew two alligator tags up in st john county which is south of jacksonville florida uh so that those are pretty long gap for that so i think i'll have a good opportunity to fill those tags it's about eight hours drive from here but I think it's totally worth it because there was one of my goals before I left Florida was to be able to hunt alligator, uh, you know, public land, not necessarily because there's two ways. So there's an, an annual draw that you put in for and you get the tags. And then there's the way you go and you basically just pay somebody. And that person already has like a, it's either like a commercial license or a harvester's license. I don't know specifically the title of it, but you go and you pay them X amount of money. And it's usually like 800 to a thousand dollars on up to $1,500, depending on the size of the alligator. And you go out and you, you can physically shoot it because that's the legal way associated with the tag with the, um, with the, over uh, the drawing tags for alligator, you can only harvest them. Um, you can use a um, like Did a you harpoon. You can use a harpoon. You can use a reel and line, or you can use a um, the bank stick. Yeah, in the end, you have to dispatch them with a bang stick. I think all three methods, but the one other is bow fishing. So you can use a bow fishing uh, archery with an arrow attached to heavy-duty line and a reel. Uh, so those are some methods. And met some individuals through the Backcountry Hunter and Angler group that are going to be part of that hunt this year uh, down from the soon-to-be, we'll say, Florida chapter. But And uh, they are going to help me out to fill those tags up in that area because I've, I've never been up there i've e-scouted i've read the harvest reports and we you know we spent a whole episode talking about looking at harvest reports and e-scouting and sort of 
figuring out where you're going to go for targeted species. So I won't necessarily deep dive into that, but my other opportunity that I'm hoping for in the spring to sort of check my box and my time in Florida is to be able to, to draw an Osceola Turkey tag and go up and hunt those, uh, in the spring. Hopefully there's no COVID 20, um, (laughs) that would hamper me. But, um, I think outside of that, Wyoming was really successful. Uh, put in for antelope, mule deer, uh, antelope and mule deer, and drew buck tags on both. So October uh, will kind of be dedicated to travel up to there, and and uh, still waiting for those Pennsylvania elk results, Corey. So if you know anybody over the commission, you just give them an elbow nudge. <laughs> I'm going to do it for myself first. I don't. Well, yeah, teamwork. Teamwork makes the dream work, as right. they say. Um, when do they typically draw those tags? I don't even know. It's uh, some the deadline to apply is like July twenty fourth, but I think they draw like the first week or so of a, uh, August. Nice. Okay, I'll keep my ear out for that. And uh, I saw yeah. that Hawaii. And, uh, I, would, I think sorry, they. I sorry, think they ahead. actually call you if you get drawn. Really? I think. Man, that would be so awesome. I want somebody to record me. <laughs> <laughs> I told you I'm in high hopes that it's going to happen. Like, I feel like the price is right. Come on down. It's like when you buy a lottery ticket. You're like, I know I'm going to win this. These seven numbers are going to win. I'm going to win a million dollars right here. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it all. But anyway, I'll get the preference point nonetheless. And uh, I was so the spring I was going to plan to try to go out with my family out to Hawaii and do a, an axis deer hunt, but I'm not sure the status of those hunts. I know the early fall hunts, the state of Hawaii has already canceled uh, just due to the COVID environment and people traveling there. So not sure how that's going to look, but um, something closely monitoring. Dustin fall plans, anything? Yeah, absolutely for fall. I don't have much for spring lined up, but for fall, um, so we have an Oklahoma hunt planned. That's going to be a uh, Sika deer. Boom. And, great state. Yeah. Sorry. And so we're going to do a, a Sika in, uh, in Oklahoma as well as wild boar. So we know a pretty good ranch up there that the guys like come shoot them, please. So, <laughs> so we're going to go up there and try to get a couple of hogs up there. And then in, um, uh, about two weeks in, we're going to go to Missouri and that's where I do my whitetail hunts at. So we're going to try to get two whitetails and we have turkey tags. So in the state of Missouri, if you're out of state and you draw um, your tags, is basically you have two antler or antlerless and two turkey. So it's a pretty good deal for out, out of state. And it's like about 250, I believe. So the turkey and deer coincide with each other? For the tags, yes. So uh, so the seasons as well. Right, yes. Okay. Yeah, so, so I, I go up there for bow. And I'm able to take two deer, antler, antlerless, and two turkey, as long as it's on public land. There's other, I have buddies up there that have landowner tags that you can get in on. But uh, for me, being out of state, going buying tags from the state, I'm able to pay my money, and I get I get two deer, two turkey options. So. Oh, I forgot to mention too. I drew an archery tag for an area down here in in Southwest Florida, um, a wildlife management area but it's for archery so uh i sweet talk dustin into letting me use his recurve bow so it's going to be mountain bikes and recurve bows it'll be like a, a wild man of the plains that's a nice bow but you know what i'll tell you one thing i'm pretty impressed with that like i'm 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 a bowman by trade 
and I'm, I like to think I'm, I'm pretty good with my compound bow. I mean, I'm hitting iguanas at 40 to 50 yards. And I'm happy with that. <laughs> that's, but that's good, yeah. seeing you draw back with no sight, nothing, you just had the bow and the arrow, and you just pull back and hit, and that was an accurate shot. That was that's pretty satisfying. I think you're going to do pretty good. Thanks, man. I hope so. Um, In a sport where time is everything, I, I think you're on the right path. Dustin and I had a big conversation, just so you guys know, because we were talking about tree stands versus hunting from the bicycle, spot like spot stock. and stock. And I wouldn't say it was a heated debate, but it was definitely a back and forth debate. And, um, you know, I'm I'm an inexperienced archery hunter, and I think the only time I've ever archery hunted was out of a blind, uh, and I would just didn't do any good. Uh, but I prefer stock, spot and stock much more. And so I told him my idea of the bicycles and he's like, you're never going to have a time to get a shot off. And I'm like, I don't care. It just to me, it seems like a very intuitive way to get into the back country without being too disturbing of, of like an ATV or anything like that. And the area I'm hunting at has a lot of trails and stuff that are closed off to motorized vehicles, but it's legal to take a bicycle. So sort of spin that idea of using the bicycle as, as a mode of transportation to sort of get further back in, uh, in the back country, much like, uh, Corey did for Turkey season up in Pennsylvania. I think, uh, same philosophy, although I might, I'm probably going to get the, the ATV, like gun mounts and put on my handlebars and just have the bow on the handlebars. So there's sort of quicker access to, to get to it. My, my only input is, is when it comes down to it, it's sounded scent, right? So you, you have to be able to get around them where they don't scent you. So you already have that against you, but as long as you, you know, use whatever amount of decenter you have and, and whatever paths are available to you to where you're not, they're not downwind from you. Right as long as you can play the scent gate, the scent card in your favor, it's once you get within shooting range, usually with any standard archery, the best shots are, you know, 15 to 30 yards. But when it comes to recurve, you're at about the, and I'm not, I'm no pro, but I'm, I'm estimating the 20 yard range for, for a recurve. Cause you have about a 50 to 60 pound bow. As long as you can get in there and line up a shot quietly. And even if they look at you and they make you, they're still going to stop for a second and try to figure out what you are. So as long as you have time to act with that, I think you'll be fine. Yeah, I don't think they'll see me, especially when I'm wearing my camouflage face mask. So it'll be yeah. good. Nice yeah. and comfortable wearing my face on. mask. Yeah, as long as your mask <laughs> matches your overalls. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I think it's a solid plan. What do you guys think? Think good plan, bad plan? I think it's a good plan. I mean, just I would say practice. Keep practicing so that when you get that adrenaline going. I guess give us a quick rundown, Colin. What's What's been up with you? um yeah know you made the move but where where'd you go what'd you see so uh i mean like most places the the game seasons are a few months off still um but waterfowl and birds are coming up and we got a whole bunch of fishing seasons we're actually right in the middle right in between uh the closing of halibut season which uh oregon just opened up they announced the opening of another halibut season coming up um it's kind of interesting that oregon's pretty flexible with uh, their seasons. So like sometimes depending on how many fish landings they have, they'll close it down early and, and where we expected maybe four or five more days of fishing season opening. Uh, I mean, they'll close it down. Um, and that being said, they might also announce like another season coming up. So whereas everybody saw how, how the season was done last week, now there's going to be another one. They're really paying attention to their harvest numbers. In other words. Yeah, very much so. That's good. Um, yeah, very good. 
Um, so right now we're in between the first halibut season and then salmon opens up uh, here. So the I kind of learned this through my job actually, but um, the seasons and the big fishing derbies follow the salmon run upriver. So the first one starts at the mouth of the Columbia River and goes to a place called Tongue Point, which is about two or three miles upriver. And that's uh, August 14th to the 27th. And then as it moves up the river, the dates also follow later in the season. So you could theoretically fish the salmon run all the way through to October, pretty much, as it goes up the river towards Idaho and Washington. Towards Is that, that your Um I'll try and hit it a, probably a couple times when it's down here. Um, fortunate, well, fortunately, I sold my boat in Key West, so I didn't have that... Uh, uh, walking me down and having that extra burden, but uh, I definitely would need to find somebody with a, a boat up here and who has that access. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm definitely interested. It's uh, Chinook and Coho for that salmon run. Uh, and then there are others that are open at different times of the year too. Um, but really, I've been going out and uh, doing some scouting for some of the bird areas around here. So there are a few areas in my region of Clatsop County, which are not labeled on ODFW's website, and they're not labeled on Onyx or anything as being like public lands open to hunting. Um, they're just kind of like local knowledge areas, but they're only labeled by a sign out front. So uh, I heard about one uh, at a local state park. I went by it, saw the sign that says there's waterfowl hunting allowed there, and ended up scouting it out a little bit last week. And um, low tide, I mean, you can pretty much walk all the way around. So there's an old old jetty that's falling apart there and uh, i mean i saw probably 200 300 canada geese flying around there or floating every time i drive past when does uh when does geese open up um i gotta check my my little schedule here um there's a well, i guess there's a what, what, in September. Open, what opens first uh, the yeah actually i think i do have the regulations open here um September is going to be one of the first geese hunts, and then it takes a break for a couple weeks, and then it opens up again. Uh, so there's a September season, there's a little bit of a break, and then there's the regular season, which uh, you actually need a special permit for. Um, you have to take an online test to hunt geese in the Northwest area. It's called the Northwest Permit Zone, uh, and that's because there's, I think, seven subspecies of Canada geese that fly through here, and one of them is an absolute no-go, cannot shoot, cannot target, uh, and that's the dusky Canada, geese, Canada goose. Uh, but, and, uh, of course, as they would have it, as nature goes, three of the other subspecies almost look completely identical. So it'll be difficult, but um, that's why you have to take a test for it so you can properly ID them when they're flying and properly ID them when they're on the ground too so you're not shooting the wrong ones. Um, so yeah, that, that all kind of lines up with goose and, and duck and some of the other waterfowl. And, uh, there are a few other places around here too, that kind of have that local knowledge aspect to them that aren't really labeled anywhere. So I'm going to try and find some of those also. So, so for those of y'all listening, you got to understand that Colin is the eye in the sky when it comes to identifying birds that are flying by. So you might see this pretty little streak go by and he'd be like, Oh, that is a, this type of swallow. You know, <laughs> he'd be like, that is a white winged dove. Um, so yeah, sure. For that, Dustin, thank you for the compliment, but, uh, not, I don't know. The subspecies are difficult. Um, but it's yeah. a lot harder than people think, right? Cause everyone wants yeah. to go out and be like, I want to shoot waterfowl, you know? Yeah. And like, my dad, my dad's always been a big, 
birder so uh he hooked me up with audubon's app where it's pretty easy identification like you can say oh i saw a black and white bird about the size of a duck flying around in oregon in july and it'll narrow it down to like 20 species and then you can go from there it's pretty nice uh, so that's that helped cool. out a little bit yeah made yeah. me think of a, a movie i was watching the other day where the guys are like competing to try to get the most number of like bird species just seen uh, in a year, uh, and oh, there's a, I've seen that. Yeah, I forget what it's called, but I have seen that. Yeah. Well, and here I got one. I'm sure Colin will know this. Like it's easy, but what I've noticed lately is I don't know if it's the lack of people going outside because of COVID. We've had these black finch-like birds with little orange under their the front of their wings. Oh yeah, they're um, uh, blackbirds. Yeah, that's what oh, they're. Yeah. Told you he'd know it. <laughs> yeah. I also saw some. Um, what was I see the other day? The like white white headed pigeons or something i think oh, is what they're called um, i think those are coots aren't they uh, i yeah. used to see those over by um hamaka the hamaka city park but, really uh, yeah i see yeah. them uh outside work not white headed pigeon you know we've had a lot on base now ever since you left doves everywhere oh, of course yeah infestation of doves i have some uh landed in my backyard now that we have a bird feeder i got some morning doves landing in my backyard oh it's a white crowned pigeon so only oh, okay. like from if you put a line like from its eyeballs from its from its beak to its eyeballs to the back of its head like a an even line just that part is white and then the rest of them is like a dark gray yeah i've seen those around i thought they were something else but it's a it's a it's a species like pretty unique to the caribbean i think and like just okay. parts of southern florida but the florida keys and the caribbean so it was pretty neat nice um and then there's another another area i've been doing a lot of research on birds you know how i am with research and data but um there's another area towards portland that's a pretty well-known waterfowl and uh, i think they have pheasant hunts there too that's called savi island and uh, they have like eight or nine controlled hunts all the way through the end of January that you can apply for. And uh, with like three each, like two or three weeks long. Um, so I've been doing a lot of research on that, figuring out which little unit, it's almost like its own little management area with different units. So I've been trying to figure out, you know, which units to apply for and which times of the year to apply for. I mean, I'll probably apply for every single available one, but um uh, it's pretty interesting. It turns out like all the way throughout the year for the two major units that are there, uh, the, the amount of birds harvested per hunter is pretty much con like constant. It's a little bit over two birds per hunter per day. Um, which is pretty good. Yeah. Which isn't bad at all. So. And they have like, they have blinds already built. So like some of the units you can go there and you just like first come first serve, pick a blind. What was your question, Dustin? I was say, what's your uh, favorite songbird to listen to? My favorite songbird? It's <laughs> uh, a very interesting question. <laughs> it sounds silly, but there's there's one in Colorado that I could listen to every damn day. Uh, you know, I grew up with a lot of chickadees in my backyard. Uh, Corey, you probably have them all a lot in Pennsylvania, also. Yep. Um, and, and it's very distinct. Uh, so I, that's kind of like my favorite. It's one that I can always pick out among the among the forest noises i can always pick out a chickadee oh, i didn't hear you i just had the mic muted good oh, what about you Corey? um so my day jobs in manufacturing and because of the whole COVID thing 
our hours have been cut. So I get Fridays off now. And I've been using a lot of that to do smallmouth fishing. We have a, a stream that goes near the house. And my one friend lives right on the stream. So we'll put in up by my house and we'll float down to his house. And uh, I've been seeing uh, seeing all those sweet photos uploaded on, uh, on the Go Wild app. Yeah. Trophies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, Go Wild's having a, a bass tournament. So I've been putting some on there and then of course the big one that i caught i didn't have the required equipment to uh officially register it so i caught a nice one out of the reservoir that was like 18 20 inches that would have won me that first week of the tournament but i didn't have what i needed <laughs> didn't have oh it. man so but uh i uh, i had a gift card to bass pro and i Spend a hundred dollars on uh, lures, mostly top water. So it it's a lot of fun catching. Do you guys know? Do you guys know how Corey got that gift card from Bass Pro? He earned it. Hard work and sweat. <laughs> Tell me more. Yeah, please explain. A uh, um, media company reached out to me. They were putting together a commercial for Father's Day for Bass Pro. And uh, I gave him a video of uh, me trout fishing with my son in my hiking backpack. And uh, I was letting them reel in, reel in the, uh, the fish. So that was in their, in their ad. So I got a $100 gift card for that, which is pretty sweet. Nice. It was pretty. It was pretty sweet. the The whole commercial was, was like a Father's Day commercial. Yep. But it was a bunch of snippets of, of different dads interacting with their kids, and maybe even just parents interacting. But I think it was more focused towards the fathers. But yeah, they were like, you know, a few seconds into it, is Corey and his son fishing, and they're like, "Oh yeah, look at that." That's awesome. I mean, Corey's always been a role model to look up to about how to how to bring your young children out to join you with this. I mean, a lot of people think, "Oh, they're not old enough yet." He's always been good about explaining, like, hey, this is the time to take him out and explain this to him and show him how to do it. Yeah, and, you know, on that note, I guess we'll segue in. (laughs) (laughs) So yesterday I picked up a Rossi 20-gauge, youth model 20-gauge. So it's it's, – the – market for buying guns is a little strange right now so i didn't get exactly what i wanted but i think it's a close second once i got it home and got to to uh you know handle it a little bit but it's um gonna try that with my daughter at first i was i was thinking about um like a savage rascal 22 because uh we could try it they had them in stock at the local gun shop and it fit her pretty well but thinking about it, like a, a kid just starting out trying to pick off a moving squirrel with a twenty-two is is a, yeah, it's a challenge. A little challenging. Yeah. yeah. And what I don't want to do is, you know, get to a point where, you know, we finally get to see the squirrel and have all that excitement for a split second, and then she misses, and then it's like a total letdown because, you know. Because it does, t- it takes some skill to, to pick them off with the twenty-two. So I decided to get the the shotgun, and we're going to use that instead. And uh, it's 
I, I, I plan to make a few little modifications to it to help, to help it fit her a little bit better. Um, uh, I, I, how, how old is she now, Corey? She's what's, what's her age? She's eight. So, okay. Um, Oh man, I have a good, good I have to get one for my daughter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my, my, one of my good friends, his son, um, started hunting squirrels successfully, uh, I think last year. And he, I think he's nine or 10 this year. So it's about the same age. So I'm keeping my expectations and hopes low just cause I don't want to, you know, have a big letdown, but I, I plan to help do a few things to help it fit her a little bit better. Like I, it's, it's a youth model and it's a synthetic stock, so it's light. So I'm a little concerned about the recoil. So, uh, mm-hmm. Allen company makes a recoil pad, um, that, uh, I plan to put on there. It's, it's called the recoil eraser and it, it's like, you know, affordable, less than 10 bucks. You can pick it up and it slips right over the end of the stock. Um, and then the- I'll have to look, I'll have to look at that. We got, um, we actually brought in, so my mom came to visit uh, right when my son was born back in March, and uh, she brought uh, my old 410. It's a single barrel breakover 410 that I've had since I was a kid, and I think it was hers before, and I'm not sure where she got it before that, but it's uh, I think it's about the size uh, for my daughter, who's turning eight in September. And uh, you mentioned that recoil pad, and it definitely a good idea i think it's a wood stock on this one but i still think it's going to have a a little bit of kick for her even though it's the 410 yeah and you this rossi's a break break action as well so the i have or my dad has a break action 20 gauge that's on the smaller size that would could potentially fit her but it's it's an old like h and r um and it doesn't have any safety and the the one thing that that I'm, you know, really focusing on is, is the safety aspect and being so young and learning the handling of a firearm. I want to make sure everything's in place. So I'm avoiding using that one. Uh, this Rossi has a safety and it's basically a bar that goes in front of the hammer. Uh, so, okay. So there's that. I I wanted to make sure we, we had a, a safe gun. And that's a very important point to to make to new, especially new fathers taking out their their maybe their first child, you know, like for adults. We look around. Oh, trigger discipline, discipline, discipline. Blah blah. blah. No, it's everyone, everyone knows keep your finger off, yeah. right? But you're you're identifying. Okay, this gun might not be the best practice gun or or, or first introduction gun, so I'm going to use this instead. That's a very important point. I mean, I think. I was thinking about it. Yeah, the one I have, it has a hammer on it as well, but it's too. I you know I've been. Um, I, I listen to Meteor podcast a lot, and we we talk about it off and on here. And Colin, you probably recall this because I think you probably you and Corey both listen to it probably as much as I do. But um, Steve Vernella a couple episodes ago was talking about with his son and having a breakover shotgun as well, and that being the choice because whenever they're not doing something or like somebody walks up, he's like his instruction to his son is like always like break that thing open. Yeah. And it's always like a show of like, there's you have no chance for for something to go wrong if the gun itself is is broken open, right? Yeah, that's a good practice. 
And I, I think that's definitely, I was thinking about that list in the episode and I was like, I have the break over 410 for, for Zoe. And there's probably going to be the, it's going to be a method. I think I'm going to stick to and just like Dustin hammered the trigger discipline safety. I mean, I don't think there's a safety on the one I have, but it's got, it has a hammer on it. So that's going to be our, our go-to for that. But I do like where your, your head's at Corey. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, one to kind of put her her mother at ease as well because you know her mom my wife i mean her her brother and her father hunted but she never did so it's kind of a little bit new territory so to help you know put her mind at ease who she's you know as a mother you're all they're always worrying about their kids so helps with that and and then uh, like you said helps helps with the safety aspect and you know we kind of went over things you know when i brought it home last night okay you know the the you know golden rules of firearm handling no you know know where your muzzle's pointing never pointed at something you don't intend to shoot you know always treat the gun as if, as if it's loaded never put your finger on the trigger until you're ready to shoot and uh so Know your target. Your target. Oh, yeah. I, knew I, I knew I was missing one. Know your target. We did talk about that one as well. So I knew I was missing That's one. That's important. Because you, you got you to gotta know your kids, right? Like for my daughter, I can do that. I can say these things. Hey, this is important. Do this, do that. For my son, I'm like, no, first you're going to carry a stick. You're going to make, sure, make sure that stick is pointing in the right direction at all times. Once I see he can handle that stick right, I'm going to give him a Nerf gun. And then we're going to graduate up. But for my daughter, she pays a little bit more attention. She has that, that mindset. So I'm able to... I'm able to understand both of my kids have different learning capabilities and I got to adjust my safety factors accordingly. I think, yeah, that's an important fact too, is like, it's a good, good perspective of especially knowing your children and paying attention to the differences. And, you know, I think as, as fathers, you start to pick out, you know, granted I have uh, a seven year old and a three month old or four month old now, but it's a, there's already subtle, sub, subtle differences in their behavior, but I'm sure like Dustin mentioned, Corey, you're probably the same. Like you, you guys know your kids pretty well and, and it's not a bad thing to adjust your teaching methods. I mean, I think any human being, no two human beings are going to learn the same way in the same amount of time and be matched up perfect. So it's, it's natural to, to have to adjust and take different directions for your kids. And I think as fathers and as parents, uh, mothers and, and mentors of younger hunters and even new hunters, uh, you know, what they call the adult onset hunter, that it's, uh, it's important just to learn, to learn and pay attention to their learning styles so that it's easier to communicate things to them in a manner that they're going to absorb. And I think safety is probably one of the biggest 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 foundations uh that we're gonna that you'll hit on yeah so we're we're working on it um but i i think to help with the uh the because like i said it's a composite stock so it's pretty light so i'm gonna put the recoil pad on and then alan also makes um uh a shell holder so I was going to slip it over the stock, put some shells in there to kind of add a little bit of weight to the stock. So absorb some of that. And then they get, they make a ton of different slings. So I'll get her, you know, get her a pink camo sling or something to put on there. 
that uh, you know she can say, yeah, that's that's my gun. But Pennsylvania has a uh, mentored youth license that you can you can buy. So I think we're going to make a little bit of a, a adventure out of going down to the the uh, sporting goods store, buying the license, buying some shells, and kind of make a, a thing out of it. So she, you know, it's something special, a little bit of a rite of passage type of thing. Right, and they also make a, a lot of good vests you can buy with that little shoulder pad in them. Oh yeah, yeah. I'll have to check those out. Her her one grandmother made her orange vest for her, so I think she she's a little attached to that one. Oh, I bet. Oh yeah, that's a special awesome. one. Um, I was man, what was I gonna say? Oh, I was gonna. Uh, do you guys have in Pennsylvania? Do you have any like youth hunt, youth only hunt opportunities? Yes, we do. Um. There was a early squirrel youth squirrel hunt in Pennsylvania, and it's they're still considered it's still considered a youth hunt, but it coincides right with the regular season. So I don't know what the difference between the youth hunt and the 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 regular hunt is. It it falls on the same date, so I'm not sure. But in years past, it's it was always the week leading up to the regular season, and then there's a youth hunt um, where you can use a rifle in like October to shoot a doe. But she's, she, she, we're, I'm not, she's not ready for a high power, powered rifle for, for deer hunting yet. So we're, we're going to stick to squirrels this year, see how that goes and, and, and work on our marksmanship to where she's, she's, uh, you know, confident before she's starts shooting at deer. That's good. That's a good, good strategy. Is there a, What's the like prime age there in Pennsylvania for for hunter hunter safety courses? Um, I took it the I think, but right before I turned twelve, I turned twelve right before the hunting season started. So I I probably took it when I was eleven. So plan on like with Pennsylvania, you don't have to have uh, a hunter safety course if you're if you have a mentored youth license. But as a mentored youth, like when I take her out, she cannot carry the gun and I can't carry a gun myself. I will be carrying that Rossi 20 gauge until we're set up, you know, sitting, waiting, or she's ready to pull the trigger. Um, I'll be carrying it with her. She's going to, we can only carry one gun between the two of us. So, um, but once I think once you're a mentored youth for three years, um, and then, then she'll be able to, well, she'll have to wait until she's 12. Then she'll be able to carry the gun herself and I'll be able to carry a gun. But I've got a few years for that. No, it's good. You're starting early though. It's laying a good foundation, I think. Yeah. And, and the past several years we've been going out, she, she goes with me to go squirrel hunting. So she, she knows what to expect. Like she knows the you know the boom of the gun and the the squirrel dies and and you know the food that we make out of it so she's she's not it's not a new concept to her she's she's familiar with it over the last few years and I, that was my goal is to get her comfortable with that and that way when she's ready to do it herself she's she knows what to expect now, does she have any friends that are interested in it too? I mean, are you willing to, to mentor other kids if they have that curiosity? Um, 
most of the kids i most of the kids i know have dads that hunt we live in a rural area so just it's more it's more common that you are a hunter than you're not so most of the kids that i know that she knows have dads that take take them hunting as well so there's not uh if there there was someone looking for hunting opportunities i'd be more than happy to take them but i think for the most part everybody you know their dads moms or dads are taking them out our our group of friends you know we all have kids about the same age and uh they all we've been go you guys do do you guys do group hunts yeah we do the first day of squirrel hunting we all go out as 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 a big group kids and dads and granddads and all that fun stuff so i'd I'd say that you're uh definitely one of your areas of expertise is is in the realm of getting kids outdoors and i want to mention you wrote an article back in december and uh it wasn't the only harvest in nature wasn't the only place that the article was featured i think it was featured in a couple other spots uh but it was titled take your kids hunting and uh i want to i do want to talk a little bit about that and dive into those uh those philosophies that you have and kind of, I want to pick your brain on behalf of the listeners um, to sort of, to see what put you in those positions and one, two parts to sort of motivate others to get their kids outdoors, but also to, for those people that may have questions or not know where to start. I think this, this article and hopefully this conversation sort of lays a good, uh, a good approach to it. So what, I guess, first off, what what sort of put that in your mind to be like all right foundationally here's these ideas and concepts that that i think um are why we should be getting kids outdoors you know when i was a kid and hunting these concepts never never really crossed my mind i was hunting just to hunt to have fun but uh you know as as you get older you start to your perspectives change and you start to look at at things and then as you know as our society is becoming more modern and we're getting more disconnected with our food then you realize how important it is um so that that was kind of my my takeaway and um and one thing that that hunting i think it's really given me an appreciation for you know the wild spaces in life like the you know what what else would you do to appreciate uh, a crisp fall morning you know sitting in a tree stand watching the sunrise you know what else would you be doing to to experience that i mean you know there's there's camping and and other things but i mean to really get that full immersion into the the wild wild places you know hunting you're you're part of nature you're you're an active participant you're not just a observing you're participating in in nature you're paying attention to the nuances that are that are in the woods the the shift and the the wind that 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 twig breaking you know behind the brush you're you're in tune with your surroundings so um and i sitting in a tree stand in northwestern pennsylvania i've i've seen a lot of of different and, and neat things while hunting you know I've seen a, a bobcat chase after a squirrel and, you know, I've had black bear walk right up underneath, 
underneath me. And it, it's funny. They knew I was there. They looked right up at me and just kept it. He kept his eye on me as he walked away. You know, you see, you know, I've seen fisher and weasels and, you know, hawks come down and pick a chipmunk off a log. It, it's, it's, if you just sit there and, and you're, you're in there, you get to see some stuff that you wouldn't normally see. So I think to, for kids, it's important to take kids hunting so they can see that. So they have that appreciation for wild spaces and, and for wildlife. Um, because if they didn't have that appreciation, there wouldn't be any incentive or motivation to preserve it, to be a conservationist, to, to, um, to, you know, give into the Pittsman, Pittsman and Robertson act, um, you know, as a conservationist and, and so we have our, our public wild, wild spaces. So that's, that's, I think it's, a, and I think it's agree with you. I just want to add to it. I think that those natural wonders that you sort of see and encounter while out both hunting and fishing, um, I think I've seen more you know wondrous things than i have you know things directly related to hunting and fishing in the moment just like outside of that the the awe of nature and the ability to look at the beauty that's around you and sort of appreciate those scenarios and uh, as a parent looking at a kid and just being able to have the the lessons to learn and the questions that come up you know in a child's mind uh just from something they observe out in nature it spurs so many good conversations and i think gets a lot of good creative thoughts uh flowing in their mind as well it's uh <clears throat> if i may add something to that kind of going along with what you're saying justin is uh i, I think it was steve Ronella who wrote in one of his books uh, that he believes the number of odd things that happen to you in nature is directly proportional to how much time you spend in nature. And yeah. um, I, mean, I think that's important kind of uh, in two different ways. One, it encourages people to see interesting things and to get out into nature and, and see those interesting things. Uh, but also you end up realizing that to nature itself, the instances you might see, like Corey was saying, the black bear just walking by, looking up at him, acknowledging that he's there and then just going on his merry way. That might be a, a special and exceptional instance right then and there, but to that bear, to that tree and to the area around it, it's not really, it happens all the time. So it's just kind of one of those things that makes you realize like one, I get to see these really interesting things that not a lot of people get to see, but also these things happen all the time. Like every, every minute of every day, all year long. So it's kind of interesting to think about that stuff. Definitely. Absolutely. If you take the weapon out of the tree stand and you just still go up there and sit, you're going to see things that you would never dream of. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. That's the first woodpecker I ever saw sitting in a tree stand. First black bear I ever saw. Same thing. Seeing and appreciating the natural wonders of the world. Corey, what are, what are some other philosophies you have? I think a lot of stuff that you learn from hunting can translate to like – you know, normal day, regular life stuff. Um, well, what do you mean? <laughs> well, you know, as a hunter, the amount of work we put in to being a, su a successful hunter, you know, uh, practicing 
um, our marksmanship, you're constantly shooting your bow and tuning and, and, um, you know, tinkering with, with your scope on your gun to, to, to make sure you're, you're a proficient shot. And then to, to hiking into the mountains to, to scout or to in the direct pursuit of an animal. I mean, it's a lot of hard work. You, to be a successful hunter, you have to work, put the work in. I mean, I mean, you can do a bare, bare minimum and be lucky every once in a while, but you mean to be a a consistently successful hunter, it it requires a lot of effort. Um, and the same can be said in just about any aspect of, of life. If you, if you want to be good in school, you got to work at it. If you want to do a good job at where you work, you got to, you got to put in the work, you got to grind. And I think if, if, uh, you'll find that someone that's willing to work and put the effort into becoming a good hunter, it, it will, it will pour into other aspects of their life. You know, you'll, someone that hunts versus someone that doesn't hunt, you look at them, at, at a, you know, their job or their schooling, it, it might, you know, there might, there's a correlation. Uh, You're like, what do you, what do you do with all this free time? Well, <laughs> I mean, there's multiple studies that, show that, that kids who uh, shoot archery have better focus in the classroom. So that's one example of what he's talking about, how it bleeds over into other aspects of life. Right. Oh, I didn't know that. That's a good point. I didn't know that. But, uh, but then it also, like how many how many times are you every time you set foot in the in the field or in the woods how many times are you successful do you fail more than every time yeah. <laughs> i wish it was that way you are a liar <laughs> i'm successful at setting foot in the woods <laughs> so, I, so like you're it's a it's a failing proposition for the most part so it it prepares them for failure you know, if you go, so I think that's kind of an issue that we see today is that instant gratification that, you know, they always, always getting what you want in the way that you want it with, with hunting. That's, I mean, if it, if it, if it was that way, it wouldn't be called hunting. It would be called killing or, or grocery shopping. But, but, uh, I think hunting prepares people for failure. You know, you, there's dealing with failure leads to resilience right exactly and yeah. i mean just this spring i was ready to throw up after i missed that turkey and and i was ready to give up but i was like i've put too much time and effort into scouting and trying to find a turkey for myself i kept at it and i eventually got one so that you know that all those times uh, how many times have i shot over the back of a deer um with my bow and you know or little things that change just at the last second and and it messes up the hunt and you know the the deer or the turkey or whatever runs off before you even get a chance to um to take a shot so there, there's all you cannot go through a, a season without some kind of failure so i i, I think it, it teaches kids that failure is inevitable and and that you need to to keep working keep improving and and be resilient to 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 come back from that yeah the the whole the old adage of uh it's not how many times you fail it's 
how you get up and recharge and move. I'm sure it's a longer version of the actual adage, but uh, makes sense in my mind. I think Rocky said it. <laughs> Is it? Yeah, I think it's a Rocky quote. I uh, he punched a lot of meat, so <laughs> no, no, no. I, I but I, I totally agree, though. And I mean, even like you look at. You look at just, and this is going to sound very centered, but in in the title of of our organization here, harvesting nature, like the very foundation of that is is harvest. It's not like go out and collect. It's not like go out and that. Like in my mind, harvest, hunting, you know, uh, trapping, fishing, all these things. It's not guaranteed. It's not guaranteed. One and two, it it you have to work at it. Each one of those terms implies that there's some work to be done. It's not like a handout. It's not given. And I think 100, I 100% agree with you, Corey. Like we live too much in the world where everything's at the click of a button and it's, you know, I can go on Amazon and order Amazon prime and I can hit order now. And I don't even have to check out. It's a great convenience, but like, you know, back, 20 years ago, you figure out what you want, shop around for the best price, maybe go 15, 20 stores, hopefully not, but, um, and then eventually find, settle on what you want. But there, there's a certain amount of work and all that that's still, it, it warrants to be existing today. And I believe that, that the outdoor world, very little that you do in the outdoor world comes at a free cost. Like you have to put in something to get something back. And that's, yeah. And that doesn't, it doesn't mean I completely agree. I wasn't trying to make light of what you're saying, but uh, no. um, I completely agree with that also. And that just because public lands are free access doesn't mean that you're not paying into something that you're not giving into something. Cause you're right. It does cost, it costs time, it costs effort and cost focus, but I mean, it's all worth it in the end. I mean, you, you mentioned that public lands aren't like, I think being prepared as a hunter and an angler, like going into public lands, you have to be more prepared than almost any other type of land in the U S because these, it's rugged sort of untamed land. Uh Like you're not having people going through and developing roads in most places. You're not, you know, there may be a trail or two here, but if you venture off quickly, like nobody's there clearing brush, nobody's cutting trees, nobody's, you know, setting up campsites. Like it's rugged, it's bare. It's, you know, in, in a lot of instances, those were the parts of land that people didn't want to buy. So, you know, it stayed in possession of whatever state or federal government. So if you don't have the experience and if you don't put in the work to prepare yourself and to prepare sort of, uh, mentally and physically, like you're walking into something completely, completely dangerous. I think like, don't, it's something not to be taken for granted. And I know we're getting way off topic from, from getting kids into hunting, but I I think it's, uh, I think you think of it as, as pub, Land, lots of risk. Shooting at Publix, you'll definitely harvest a turkey, but everyone will freak out and call the cops. <laughs> what are you going to say, Corey? I I don't think it's it's strayed too far from from the 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 topic at all. I think you're right there with it. You're right. You're right on on target. Thanks, man. I've been practicing. <laughs> <laughs> 
Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Here at Harvest in Nature, we are known to cook a variety of wild fish and game in a variety of ways. Probably one of my favorite methods is to cook in a smoker. Traeger Grills has some of the best products out there. Their pellet grills aren't just grills. They're smokers and ovens too. Anything you can do in the oven in your house, you can do on the Traeger. You can make desserts. You can grill steaks. You can use cast iron pans and braise tough cuts. You can allow roasts and briskets to smoke all day until they're tender and delicious. You can even use it to make jerky. Their variety of pellets are also very impressive. The different flavors of wood allow you to pair with your meat or fish or vegetables and give it the most flavor that you can create. They even have varieties created specifically for your next wild fish or game meal. But then I, I really like you loop in the main, one of our main focused. Right, yes. The, the reason that, that Harvest in Nature is here. Right, and, and that's when... When I first started writing for Harvesting Nature, is when I really I start I really started to realize the what hunting meant to me and what it could mean to me and and the importance of it because you know um, when I f- when we first hooked up, um, my daughter was only you know a year or two old and you know really started paying attention to food labels and where stuff was coming from and and so it, it became a very important issue to me. And uh, a couple weeks ago, we were, were sitting, uh, eating dinner. Our neighbors had uh, made um, a couple taco casseroles, and they gave one to us. We're sitting there eating it. My, my son looks over, and he goes, what's in this? Is this deer? And I, was, I was like, no, it's beef. I was like, our, our neighbor, Neil, he, he doesn't hunt. He goes, well, where does he get his food from then? And, and so I think that just like, boom, I, I, I achieved my goal. You know, that's, that's Especially what I've been tr- right. Proud, exactly. Proud papa. It was, it was a proud dad <laughs> moment. Up a towel. You've done it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so that's, that's what, what hunting does. It, it teaches, teaches the kids where the food comes from. Like my, um, my all three of my kids have watched me skin deer and they've you know watched me cut it up my my two older ones have helped me cut up a little bit and um so they they understand well yeah dad shot that out in the woods brought it home we we skinned it out in the garage and now we're cutting it up in the kitchen he's we're going to eat it soon so that that has become a big part of our lives and and they know where their food comes from and and we don't have to to worry during this whole pandemic. We don't have to worry about, you know, if the meat, you know, the sh- shelves on the, the butcher section of at the grocery stores are going to be empty. We already have a full freezer. So they they uh, they understand where it's coming from and they they do not they do not squirm when they see see me doing any of that stuff. And they're more more than happy to be out there with with me watching or helping as much as i can so i'm thankful for that i'm thankful i can involve them in it and i think 
you know, a lot of people could look at that and be like, you know, oh my gosh, what are you exposing your children to? But it's like, it's to me in my mind and, and hopefully the mind of, of others in similar situations, like it, it, it should be in our minds, such a natural act. It's like, do you, when you vacuum the floor, you know, do you like, Hey kids, get out of here. This is really bad. Like, it's a natural act to clean up after yourself, to vacuum your floor. Like when you come home and you put your groceries on the counter, like do you tell your kids to get out of there and while you put up all the groceries or you ask them to help or do they watch? Like, you know, it's, it's the same exact concept. It's just, we're taking something that there's a, a little more investment in a little more, uh, involvement in hard work, all the other stuff that comes with it. But it's also, it's like in its core foundation, you know, as it has been for hundreds of years, thousands of years, one of the main purposes of hunting and fishing is for food. And I say this time and time again, if you've read anything I've written, if you've listened to this podcast enough, you know that I'm like, I pound in there like, that's our purpose, our our secondary purpose as a hunter or angler is to get out there and find the next person to pass that legacy on to. And that involve, if you have kids, that involves your kids. And it's just that, like, Corey's getting out there, cleaning deer, his kids are watching him, helping him, you know, to whatever extent they can. But it's like, that's now not only has it created the concept of, like, this is this is a social behavior in our family, like, this is normal, you know, why or why doesn't everyone else act this way? But it's also like it they have the understanding that that's where food comes from. And I think it's, it's hugely important. But yeah. <laughs> no, I, I don't have anything to add that you've already said. And I completely agree. And I really, so Corey, I really like, um, I really like your Anthony Bourdain quote. I'm also a huge I'm, Anthony Bourdain fan. Yeah. I, I, I didn't really pay attention to any of his stuff until after he passed away. And then I started watching um, No Reservations on Netflix. And I'm like, why didn't I start yep. watching him before this? And um, I think it was the one episode where he's hunting pheasants with Joe Rogan. But it, he, he, if you choose to eat meat, there should be a sense of loss and understanding. And I, 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 I think that that um hunters know that the best and and you know i, I don't I, i'm not going to say i cry over shooting a deer or or an animal i'm thankful that i am but when when i see a dead deer like hit on the road i i uh, i i feel a sense of loss because that that you know it's kind of a waste you know no one's no one's but I mean, it goes back to nature. So, but, but you do have to have compassion. I, I don't like the wanton waste of, of animals to so just the, you know, the poachers going out there and shooting and just cutting the heads off. Like as a hunter, that's, that's, you're not a hunter. If you do that as a hunter, you hate to see that type of thing. And so I think hunting teaches, teaches our kids about, compassion and, and empathy and knowing that, you know, not wanting to cause suffering to the animal. Um, and 
you know, I think it's, it's, that's true. I mean, I don't, I've never met in my life a, a hunter that's like not absolutely sick at a, at a ill placed shot or a deer or an animal that got away. And it's just like you spend, I, you know, we've, we've spent hours and hours on the side of a mountain trying to find a deer that, that we shot that we were like almost 100% sure, you know, was down and then just get to the point where it's like, blood trail stops. Yeah. Like why? How? Yeah. We can't, it can't physically find it anymore, no matter how hard you try. And it's a sickening feeling to walk away from that. And there's there's definitely a lot of conflicting emotions in in hunting and harvesting an animal, and I don't think we should have our kids shy away from that. I think we need to expose them to that, have talk about that, you know, the death of that animal, and and you know, hunting. You know, if you buy a piece of meat from the grocery store the death of that animal is so abstract. You're so disconnected, but when you're the one pulling the trigger and causing its death, you know, it's no longer abstract. It's very real. And, and I think it, it just creates a, a, a lot more respect for that animal and, you know, makes you want to utilize it as much as, as much as you can. Um, and I, as I've gotten older, I've, I've learned that more and I, I've, uh, so I'll, you know, I've started keeping, I never, you know, back when you're, when I was younger, you, you didn't look at it. I didn't look at it quite that way. You know, we just went hunting, but now save the bones for, for stock, for making stock, you know, save the heart and the liver and the call fat and try to utilize the animal as, as best as possible. Most, you know, as best you can. So I think, you know, Colin, it was, uh, yeah. our, our last, our last episode, our conversation with John Wallace, and he made a very interesting point, And I think it's the first time I've ever heard of it where he talked about, he mentioned it, but we didn't go into detail of it, but it was the, the stages of cooking and eating wild game. Yeah. And it sort of, I think it, it, it coincides with the there's what is it Corey? it's the how many stages of being a hunter i forget it's four oh, or five that's five i believe and yeah. i think that if you look at it from an aspect of like you're the type of hunter that you're hunting for food you're able to come sort of combine the two but it was definitely like um very thoughtful and thought provoking his comment um, I think it's something I want to pursue a little bit more thought into, but it, it lies very close in the lines of what you just mentioned, Corey, with like, all right, when I was, you know, when I was younger, I wasn't necessarily putting all the thought into, you know, I need to pull every part. I need to use this. I need to try to figure out what I'm going to do with each separate section. And I think there's a, an evolutionary point or a process um, as a, we'll say a wild game consumer. But, um, I think even with kids that can be so, and they can witness the entire process. And of course they themselves, just like no matter what's no, no different of the States that I see someone go through as a hunter, me 
as a hunter myself, I'm going to travel through almost the same different, different uh, states, if that makes sense. That's a good lesson to the kids too. I mean, I've tanned the hides of almost every deer I've shot, even my buddies, even a hog just for practice. But it's good to show, hey, you can preserve this and turn this into something. I think kids will pay attention to that. I, I think there's a lot of lessons conceptually to be to be taught, you know, beyond the food. And I, I think Corey does a great, great job of painting this out in the article, but it's just like there's so much to be learned. Like there's there's definitely more positive takeaways from putting your kids in the outdoors than there are on the negative side. And I don't know if you guys agree. If you let me know either way, but I I I no I, I completely agree. I don't I don't know what would be negative from taking your kid getting out. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I did, I, I want you to hit these last couple of uh let's hit these last couple marks here. All right. So, you know, back in the day there was always the you know, the rite of passage, you know. You know. So, I think hunting harvesting your first animal is, is kind of a rite of passage or or going out for your first time hunting is is a rite of passage so i i still remember the the first morning i ever went archery hunting i could probably walk right back to the tree i was sitting in but like i still remember being too short for the seat in the tree stand and my feet dangling off the seat i still remember the squirrel climbing up the tree so it's it's going hunting is is like a is a a rite of passage a primal rite of passage in today's world where there's not there's not many other ways you know types of rites of passage but but you know from that you know that first time you're in the woods the first time you're you're hunting you know from that point forward, you are a hunter. So it's, it's hunting provides that rite of passage. And I think it can be, um, a life changing experience for, for a lot of people. Like, you know, it's, it's that step into adulthood. You're carrying a gun, you have responsibilities, you, you have the ability to take a life. You, you, I I think it's, I mean, there was a huge emphasis on it, like growing up where, where I did, it's just like, that was something that everyone did. And I, I don't know if, if you weren't involved in any aspect of it, it was, there was a definite societal division, but even within the hunting community, it's like, yeah, you were recognized. Okay. Well you're coming in. Oh, oh you taking your hunter safety course. And this was at the time period, like in the late nineties, like early two thousands when, you know, hunting course, hunters ed courses were just slowly becoming mandatory. And it was like, all right, well, now you're learning to be a safe hunter. All right, you're going hunting on your own. And then it's like you you evolved and people grew, you know, helped grow you and then looked at you and were like, all right, now you're you're sort of more respected as a hunter. You're getting you're going through this life change through gain in responsibility and it's like it's got to the point where all right now you're 17 18 years old or you know 15 16 or whatever you may be hunting on your own like no adult at all um you know i guess it would be 16 in most places but um there's a definite like 
defining point, I think, and recognize like it's cherished. It's like an elevation of responsibility that you're oh, like, yeah. in the next level. And that's, that's where people like us need to be good mentors because it's at this, we want to make sure, you know, we're giving them the core values and the morals of, of an ethical hunter before they go out on their own. So it's like leading up to that point to this rite of passage that we need to, to make sure that they become the, the type of hunter that, that they need to be, that they should be. It is about the right one. I was, uh, I'd say late elementary school, early mid school. And the first person to ever take me out, I, I had mentors, role models, my dad, I had all that. But the first person to take me out and show me how to safely shoot a weapon was uh, Joe Van Horn, my buddy Travis's dad. You know, and I, I won't remember that till the day I die because that was a, a fundamental point in my life where he said, he taught me about safety. He taught me about trigger discipline. He taught me about all that. And I was a very young child, but he took me out and taught me the correct way to do it. And that was a, That was a big point to me, and I'll never forget that. I think that's a perfect segue uh, into uh, into one of your last couple points there, Corey. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we've been talking about guns. Guns are such a divisive topic nowadays. But, like, if you have a pool and you're scared of your child drowning, do you just always keep them away from the pool for the rest of their life or do you teach them to swim so they're prepared you know you want to same thing can kind of apply to 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 guns you want to teach them about guns so it, it gets rid of that stigma it you they learn how to handle them properly and you know there is you know there's no chance that they they you that it, you know, the chances of anything bad happening are are drastically reduced, and and hunting hunting is a perfect uh, avenue to do that. You know, I've I've as a hunter, I have rifles and shotguns in my home. My children see them; they know what they are. They know that they're not supposed to touch them without me. They know that that they're a serious thing, and um. You know, showing my daughter that shotgun that she just got, what we talked about earlier, the 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 golden rules of, of firearm safety. So hunting's a perfect introduction to that. And I think um, the world would be better off if people n- knew more about firearms and not just were afraid of them and, and completely avoided them. They're, they're not, they're not an evil thing. I think so for me growing up, we were always taught like firearms, you have two types, like you have the types that are, are made for defense. You know, of course they can all be made for defense and they can all be made for war, but you have the types that are specifically made for that. And then you have, you know, types that are hunting or whatever for that. But it's like in the end, when it comes down to it, the, the philosophy that I was, I was raised with was just the fact that guns are like tools. 
you know, you look at it like a screwdriver in a toolbox, like that screwdriver has a job. You can also take that screwdriver and you can turn it into a deadly weapon. And if you mishandle it or you put it in the hands of someone that doesn't need it, like those things can be used in a way that's outside of that tool's original purpose. But if you stick to the original purpose of the tool, like it's a tool in a toolbox. And like my mentality has always been that way. I'm, you know, I'll be the first to admit, like I'm not a big gun nut. I don't collect guns. I don't, I don't spend a lot of time at the range unless it's like to go out to make sure everything's sighted in or do any adjustments or things like that. And I just like not knocking anybody that does that, just not my, my cup of tea. But it's just in the, at the end of the day, like the guns that are in my gun cabinet, they're tools and it's nothing more. And it's like I instill that in the mind of my children. And that's kind of what I grew up with. And I don't know, it's it's a it's a sound approach, I think. But I agree with both of you. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. And but it goes two ways and the children look up to us. They're impressionable. So if you if you're all about like, oh, these these guns are crazy and this and that and war movies and this and that, they're They're going to idolize it like that. But if you show them hey, you have to be responsible around this. You have to handle this correctly. You have to make sure when you carry it, you have this kind of trigger discipline. You don't have it loaded when you're crossing a fence. All the different things from, from hunter safety, they pick that up. Kids learn. They're small versions of adults, right? So they're going to learn those lessons that we teach them. So the ultimate responsibility falls on the parents. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Then we talk about the last thing, Corey. The, the most important part of hunting for me is is spending time with my family and and doing that the, the memories that we make together you know I have so many memories with my dad or with family of of being hunting or doing things involve around hunting whether it's the, the act of hunting or or um, in my grandmother's uh, butcher shop cutting up a, a deer around the the old school butcher block with my dad and uh family friends and uncles and cousins like hunting hunting has created a lot of memories for me and and because of that my dad and i are are i'm very close with my dad we spend a lot of time together we do a lot of hunting and fishing things together and i have a lot of memories and I look back fondly on those memories and it's that reason is what drives me to take my own kids out. It's like, I want them in 30 years when they're, you know, middle age and have kids of their own and are wherever they are in life. I want them to look back on that and be like, man, that was a hell of a time with, with my old man hunting for squirrels or deer or whatever it is. It, it's, it's the memories I made with my dad or what I want to make with my kids. So that's, that's one of the main motivators for me for, for taking my kids on to. I agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I took, I think Colin had the opportunity to come out with us the first time, uh, Zoe went out like on her first memorable hunt. And it was, a uh, to me, it stood out. I don't know about you. Cause you know, like outside looking in, but sort of seeing her interact and involve herself in, in those moments when we were out there, just sort of, uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget her first hunt. I don't think. No, uh, I, I think, uh, 
I mean, for what I could tell, I think she really enjoyed it. She was she was involved. She was actively involved. She was looking for stuff. She was trying to spot things. She was asking what different things were. Um, so yeah, I, th I think she'll remember that for a long time, even yeah. if she doesn't realize it now. You know, I think down the road she'll look back and realize that you know it was an excellent opportunity for her. She'll remember it forever. I'm trying to think back if I remember like my first time hunting. I think I remember the first few times they probably like fused together. Um, but it, it definitely stand out. Each one's unique and they have their own. And, and to go back to like one of the first things we talked about, just like sometimes it's more the wonders and things that you see when you're in nature versus the actual hunt itself that, uh, that I, I draw from as an adult in retrospect, looking as a kid, like, you know, the things that stand out and like, Oh wow. Yeah. Like the, the time my dad fell in the stream when we were deer hunting, that, that was a f funny memory and I will never <laughs> let him forget that. So it's just, the, <laughs> it's not always the act of, of shooting that big buck, but like the, the little, the little insignificant things that are in between that seem in, insignificant, but are really, you know, what, what you really remember about, about stuff. And I think it's important, you know, carrying on family traditions, but you also talk a lot about the, the traditions of, uh, of our wildlife model. And I think that's pretty profound as well. Yeah. Yeah. There's hunting numbers are declining. Hunter numbers are declining. And, and that's, that's not good for anybody, even the non-hunter. Because it's it's hunters that and and hunters buying licenses and and equipment and everything that that help fund our public lands and everybody uh, benefits from Even from the public lands. For, for hikers, they get lost. Those search and re rescue efforts are paid for by hunters. Did you guys see? Um, oh man, I forget which state it was. It may have been Colorado, one of those states in in like the Four Corners area. Um, are requiring, I think, hikers that use state parks to now purchase. Yeah, I heard about that. I forget, I forget which state it was. It is, but there's a you get such a, a a wide array of outdoor activities, and it's like in a lot of times you get hunters are hunters and anglers are are footing the bill for a lot of things that are upkeep. So it's uh, it's Colorado Parks and Wildlife um, are going to require uh, either a hunting or fishing license to use state wildlife areas. So all visitors, all visitors eighteen or older, is what the the new the new rule is. That's excellent, and it might even uh, have a side effect of getting people out to go hunting more too. Yeah, I mean, I contribute to some game management if they, you know, if they already have the the license, the hunting license, or the fishing license. You know, somebody might be like, "Well, I might as well just go use this for what it actually is, too." Yeah, I, I think so. And and you know, Corey, you you mentioned uh, what was it the Putman Putman Putnam Robertson Act? Pit, Pitman, Pitman Robertson. Pitman. Yeah, there we go. And it's like that. That's such a wide encompassing act that uh for for funding i hope i'm getting that right right yeah yeah it's pretty much it i mean it's like ammo 
firearm sales, hunting equipment sales, all all goes to support uh, like trail upkeep, management mm-hmm. of public lands, management of game lands. Um, so it all kind of feeds back into the into the system. So you know we're not just exploiting the the natural resource and then letting it fall to the wayside because of overuse or just wear and tear over time. So I will. This is a good uh, this is a good opportunity for me to sort of mention this, but um, several episodes ago last month, um, we had the uh, Great American Outdoors Act cleared the Senate, so it was passed, and uh, now it's up for consideration in the House of Representatives, and uh, backcountry hunters and anglers have been being extremely proactive to inspire individuals to reach out to their uh, representatives so that that this act can travel through the house representatives without any amendments in order to do that there's some procedural votes that need to take place to push it forward but uh i think this is a good good opportunity to mention that so reach out to your state representative go to the backcountry hunter and english page they have uh their website has a direct link with you know sort of a <laughs> their webpage has a canned response with a, a good way to send a message to your representatives and you can plug in your zip code and it'll link you up with the appropriate ones. But to communicate, you know, your passion for the outdoors, your support of the great American outdoors act and, and all that thing so that you can communicate appropriately so that we can help move this bill or move this act, I should say, um, through the final stage of Congress and, and to, uh, to the president's desk for signature. So one last plug on that, because I think that's a, that's an important, I think it's a, you know, we'll go back, Corey. I don't think we talked about it much in your article, but it's, it's a good thing too, maybe to understand as a child. And it's probably more in latter years versus where sort of our children are at, but um, definitely keep them on an understanding, even at a basic level of like how state, wildlife agencies operate and sort of you know everybody has this negative connotation a lot of times not everyone but a lot of people have of of fishing game and you know uh those wildlife and law enforcement officers and things like that and just understanding where conservation organizations come into play and and how that world works because i think growing up as a kid i was pretty uh i really had no understanding of it all same here outside of if if you do bad things, the you know fishing game's going to come catch you. Yeah, type understanding, but um, like all the I, bio- I think it's some- biology work that they do and and stuff like that to yeah. to understand. Yeah, as growing up, you know, never realized that, but but it's definitely something that that needs to be, you know, more. We need to be more aware of. I think so too. And like even coming down, you know, as kids go through government class, I don't even know if they have government classes anymore. They teach civics or things like that, but just understanding of like where funding for wildlife, like who's, where's our access protection coming from? Like where are the dollars that help maintain trails? Like, you know, kids are more observant than they let on a lot of times. And even just mention it in a passing conversation, if you do it over and over, it's likely to stick, but, but and and not just from the the government aspect, but you have all all the different types of conservation groups, you know NWTF and 
Rocky Mountain Elk and Ducks Unlimited. You know, they all contribute to, to different projects. And and I think Steven Ranella, we've mentioned him several times, but I, I think he has a good way of saying he doesn't – I don't care for the individual deer, but I care for the species as a whole to make sure that that they're – they're lasting that's a renewable that you know we're we're managing them well so you know generations um in the future ha have the ability have the have the opportunities that we do now to 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 hunt and fish for the species that that we have I agree, man. So much, so much of the natural world is just borrowed. It's borrowed from the next generation and the next generation, the next generation. Like, um, the, the things we do nowadays have implications 50, 60, 70, 80 years, a hundred years down the road. And that's through both education, conservation, like mismanagement of resources, like all those things. But, uh, Let's go ahead and do a little around the room because our time is running narrower. Uh, Dustin, you have any last uh, last thoughts or alibis for us? Nope. Nope. Thanks for listening. Colin, can't wait to see some more pictures. Yeah, hopefully I get some good ones coming up in the next few weeks. I'll post them. Corey, last uh, alibis. I just, I'm going to put something together to show what I'm doing with, with my daughter and, and the gun that we got to get her outfitted and and uh allen companies help helping me doing that so keep an eye out for that and and uh yeah this is good conversation yeah man i like it we don't often get into these sort of philosophical conversations but i think it's one it, it you know it lets the listeners it lets everyone out there know sort of where we stand and and in agreement or disagreement and it it it's meant to be thought provoking and uh, spawn conversations of your own, whether you, you lean in favor or against. Um, yeah. If anybody know, has, has any other ways of, you know, different perspectives on how it, it, taking your kids helps, helps them and in, in any aspect of their life or um, I'd love to hear that. I'd love to expand on this. Yeah, agreed. Colin, last thoughts? Um, I had to second what Corey just said. That I think this is a great conversation. And, you know, it wasn't strictly about hunting stories. It wasn't strictly about food. I know that's the kind of the focal point of harvesting nature. But uh, it's important to talk about what we're doing for the next generation, both in conservation of the resource and, and teaching our kids and everything growing up. And my, my point with that, I'd like to put out there is that all three of you guys have stories about um, when you learned to hunt your first time hunting as a kid uh, and now teaching your own kids how to do the same. Uh, my story is a little bit different if you've been a long time listener that uh, I didn't go hunting until I was 22 and that was for rabbits in Alaska with an over, over the counter small game license in Kodiak. And then uh, it wasn't until Maybe about three or four years later where I started going consistently out to Colorado. And then when I moved down to Florida and linked up with uh, Justin and Dustin, started going up to, up to South Florida. So uh, don't, let, don't let the intimidation of needing, thinking that you need to learn young in order to be successful. Uh, if, if 
any of the listeners have not gone out hunting and they're looking for inspiration, don't, don't look at it as like, well, I didn't start young, so I don't have that instilled in me that I, I can't do it. Uh, you can absolutely still go and learn it. Um, that's what I've been doing and I'm still doing. So don't let, don't let that shy you away. And, right. And I want to, I want to challenge our listeners is take someone new hunting this year, whether it's a kid or an adult. I, I, uh, I have a friend from school that he bought his, I've been helping him go through the PA's licensing and applications. And he got his first uh, license this year and he bought a bow and we're going archery hunting. We're taking a few days off and in the fall and we're going archery hunting together. So, so I'm trying to, to not only with my kids, but with friends and other people to, to continue the tradition of hunting. So I challenge our listeners. And I echo that tenfold. Um, I think there's so many people out there that, uh, that there's definitely, well, there's definitely more hunters than there are, or more non hunters than they are hunters. So it, it shouldn't be hard to find. And, and I always, like I said earlier, harp on that, but I agree with what Corey says. And it's been a great conversation. Uh, really appreciate everyone listening. So, uh, we got an exciting remainder of the year planned for you. So we're eager to share ideas and concepts and thoughts and adventures. And of course, wild fish and game recipes as always. Uh, so whatever podcast platform you're listening to, go ahead and go over, punch those five stars, give us a like, give us a review, tell us what we're doing wrong. We're doing right. Like Corey said, you can always reach out to us, uh, at what's cooking at harvestingnature.com. Uh, everyone here sees those emails and uh, can answer questions accordingly or concerns or comments. And, or if we have, you want to make a correction to something we said, uh, feel free to do so. We'd love the engagement with the listeners. And uh, as always, social media, hit us up. You know where to find us. And uh, thanks for listening. Good night. Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.